0: Turning to breaking news, as we first reported last night, Vancouver police are now confirming the identity of the victims in a decades-old cold case known as Babes in the Woods. The major breakthrough comes nearly 70 years after the remains of two children were found in Stanley Park. Since their remains were discovered in 1953, buried under brush, lying next to a murder weapon, they've been examined several times over without a match. But police say the pair has now been identified as brothers David and Derek Dalton, who lived in Vancouver and are believed to be descendants of Russian immigrants. They were both under 10 years old when they died.
1: It is, we believe strongly that no person should ever be killed in obscurity. We also know that no matter how long it takes, there's always someone or something, even a microscopic piece of DNA taken from a 70-year-old bone fragment that can lead to a break in the case. While well, no
0: arrests have been made, investigators speculate the person who killed them was likely a close relative who died roughly 25 years ago.
2: I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada. This is an update on the Babes in the Woods. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. I've been obsessed with the Babes in the Woods case ever since I first heard about it on a visit to the Vancouver Police Museum back in the late 1980s. It was a breakfast meeting for an organisation called Tourism AM and we ate in the old autopsy suite. Wandering through the former morgue, which then and now hosts a true crime exhibits, there was something so heartbreaking to see the two tiny skulls on display that had been discovered in Stanley Park in 1953. Two little kids that nobody had missed, or at least reported missing. Over the years, I've connected with others who were equally obsessed with the fate of the two children. Some were independent researchers, and for others it was their job to find out who murdered the boys, but more importantly, to find out who they were. Laura Usagian, coroner, a long line of Vancouver homicide detectives, including Brian Honeyburn and Dale Weedman, former CKNW investigative reporter George Garrett, and Katerina Thorson, artist and researcher, have worked diligently to give these boys their names back. And over the years, they've all generously given me their time so that I could write about these tragic unsolved murders. Cold Case Vancouver was published in 2015, with 25 unsolved murders, including Babes in the Woods. I'd hoped that bringing attention to these cases that reached as far back as 1944 might bring new leads that could help to solve these seemingly unsolvable cases. And then in February 2022, nearly 70 years after the skeletons were found in Stanley Park, the Babes in the Woods were identified as Derek and David D'Alton, aged six and seven years old, when they were beaten to death with a hatchet. Before I get into some of the startling developments that have happened over the last few weeks, I'm going to give you some of the backstory of the Babes in the Woods If this is the first time that you're hearing the story about the babes in the woods, please see my episodes 12 and 13 that takes a deep dive into the 70-year police investigation. In January 1953, Albert Tong was working with a Vancouver Parks Board crew clearing bush in a remote part of Stanley Park when he stepped on a lump and heard a loud crack. As he raked away the leaves, he found that the cracking sound had come from a skull and as he carefully lifted away an old fur coat, he saw what would later be revealed as two human skeletons. Tong's discovery in the woods that winter morning set off a chain of events that would confound and fascinate the citizens of British Columbia for the next seven decades. In 1953, there wasn't much in the way of crime scene forensics, and two police officers arrived and used their hands to scrape off the rotting leaves to unearth what was left of two children, one slightly smaller than the other. They counted the layers of leaves to guess at the number of years that the remains had been there, took a couple of photos, threw the bones and the rest of the evidence into a cardboard box, which included the woman's coat, two children's flying helmets, a pair of goggles, shoes, a woman's brown penny loafer, a child's blue metal lunchbox, and a hatchet. Everything was taken to the city morgue, where Dr. T.R. Harmon and the coroner, Dr. John Whitbread, attempted to reassemble the bones. Harmon was a medical doctor and not trained in forensics. He determined that the children were aged between 7 and 12 and were beaten to death by the hatchet. The blade, which he demonstrated, fit neatly into the fractures. And even though the skeletons were wearing boys' outfits and it was difficult to determine sex from skeleton remains, the original case file said a girl and a boy. And this mistake sent detectives off on the wrong track for the next 45 years as police searched for a missing brother and sister. There were no reports of missing children and the police hired Erna Ingel Bezeldorf a forensic anthropologist and sculptor to create likenesses of the children from the broken and decomposed skulls, working with the information that she was given by the medical examiner. While she was working on the plastic casts, police borrowed an outfit from a department store that they thought the children had worn based on the scraps of material that they'd found with the skeletons. What was left of the cheap fur coat made in 1943 and found covering the skeletons was also recreated and photographed. Investigators estimated that from the size of the coat and the woman's shoe, that the woman was a short and stocky five foot three, weighing between 125 and 135 pounds. The boy's outfit, a Canadian-manufactured red Fraser tartan jacket, beige cord pants, brown shoes, and the leather aviator helmet, was put on a store mannequin the size of a small child and a photograph was sent to the media. Tips poured in from all over North America. More than a hundred people said they remembered seeing a boy and a girl in Stanley Park in the late 1940s. All of these tips were checked out and eventually dismissed. The police theory has always been that the mother killed her children and then most likely killed herself. And this was certainly plausible. The years after the war were rough on women, particularly single mothers. Then as now, there was a housing shortage, high rents and employment for women was available, mostly in badly paid retail jobs or domestic work, which did not provide childcare or enough money to pay for it. When I was first researching the story of the Babes in the Woods, I went through the annual Vancouver Police reports for 1948. That year, it mentioned seven murders in which three involved mothers and children, In two of them, the mother shut herself in a room with a child and killed them both by gas oven, and the other where a mother threw her two children off a bridge and jumped off after them. These were the days where there was no safety net and it was desperate times. Vancouver Police Detective Don Mackay headed up the initial investigation. He thought the murderer was a woman because of the strength of the blows. They were light blows that barely made a depression in the skull, he told a reporter. Mackay thought the woman had thrown herself into the waters of nearby Barad Inlet. Because of the five layers of leaves, and what he thought was a credible tip, Mackay focused on 1947 as a year of the murders. Tips flooded in from members of the public who remembered someone with children of those ages in Stanley Park that year and whose present whereabouts were unknown. Mackay checked every lead. He traced 76 pairs of children that were unaccounted for in Western Canada, finding some as far away as Scotland and Australia. He searched through missing persons records, contacted local school boards to find out if a boy and a girl, probably brother and sister, had failed to return to school around 1947. Social agencies were also asked to check their records for any children of similar ages who may have been on their caseloads at that time. Police checked out every lead, personally setting eyes on each child and ensuring their safety. Then the investigation stalled for the next four decades. Babes in the Woods is not the only shocking tale from Vancouver's most famous park. On Forbidden Vancouver's Dark Secrets of Stanley Park tour... You'll hear stories of buried treasure, the truth about Dead Man's Island and the notorious case of the Stanley Park Prowlers. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Find out more and book tickets at forbiddenvancouver.com and you can save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. The bones of the children and the artefacts recovered at the scene were stored in three file boxes and left in the basement of Vancouver's Coroner's Court on East Cordova Street with other unsolved case files. And there they remained until the RCMP joined with various city police forces to form the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit to clear a backlog of several hundred unsolved murders. Detective Sergeant Brian Honeyburn, a veteran cop with 33 years on the force, had been raised on stories about the Babes in the Woods murders from his parents. He decided to order up the case from the archives, blow the dust off the files and take another look. The report from the initial investigation was just two pages long. Like Don Mackay before him, Honeyburn believed that the boys were killed by their mother in a planned frenzy killing. There was nothing on the hands of the boys to indicate defensive wounds, which was not surprising, says Honeyburn, given their young ages and the speed in which the bludgeoning would have taken place. In 1998, Honeyburn went to the Vancouver Police Museum and packed up all the bones and exhibits that were on display. He discovered that the rest of the children's bones had been tossed in a cardboard box in a police warehouse. He took the remains to Dr David's suite a forensic scientist at the University of BC. And Sweet was able to extract two teeth from the skulls. His discovery that the skeletons belonged to two boys, essentially threw out nearly half a century of police work. Armed with the new information, Honeyburn's team went back through the case files, looking for tips referring to a missing set of boys. The problem was nearly 50 years had passed, and likely dozens of tips hadn't made the files because police had been looking for a missing brother and sister. Once Sweet had extracted the DNA, Honeyburn thought it would be disrespectful to put the children's bones back on public display where they had been at the Vancouver Police Museum. He saved the skulls for possible future use, and without the knowledge of his superiors, he had the rest of the bones cremated and buried at sea. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making, together with her love of antique styling, to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. The BC Coroner's Service currently has more than 180 cases of people's remains found all over the province, missing people who are yet to be identified. The Babes in the Woods is their oldest case. Laura Yuzadjian, Identification Specialist for the BC Coroner's Service, has been looking after the Babes in the Woods case since she started there in 2015. For her, the case has always been personal.
0: When we talk about these two kids who were murdered back in the 1940s, never found and just thinking about how different the city was at that time and how something like that could have happened and nobody figured out who they were over all this time. It's, it's a fascinating mystery.
2: What was your reaction when you found out they had their names?
0: Well, I was just astonished, honestly. But mostly because it, it happened really fast. This kind of research can take months or years, but it happened. It happened really fast, and we were just really lucky that there were the right relatives there.
2: Was this the first one that's been solved through genetic genealogy?
0: This is the first one of our cases, yes, that has been solved through genetic genealogy.
2: Potentially, what does this mean for others if you're unsolved?
0: Hopefully, what it means is we'll be able to start using this technology for more cases. Uh, There are some limitations, unfortunately. It's still a very expensive and time-consuming process, which is really the main limitation that we have in terms of using it for all of our cases to hopefully be able to solve them.
2: What was it about this particular case that makes it different for you?
0: Well, I think it's partly because it's so historical. This was our oldest case. Um, The next oldest unidentified case we have is from 1962, partly because we are absolutely aware that the longer it takes to identify these cases, the smaller chance there is going to be that there is somebody alive who we can confirm an identification with, and the smaller chance there's going to be of family or next of kin or anybody who even knew or remembered the individual. This one was a little bit different because, you know, these are children, so they would likely have still been alive today if they hadn't been murdered. Maybe, maybe not, but they wouldn't have been, you know, exceptionally elderly they'd have been there.
2: Ezejian had almost given up hope that the children would ever be identified, and then genetic genealogy hit the headlines. In 2018, Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, working with the FBI, discovered the identity of the Golden State Killer, who committed a string of rapes and murders in the 1970s and 80s. Later that same year, and using the same methods, Parabon's Cece Moore named William Talbot as a killer of Saanich residents Tanya Van Cullenborg and Jay Cook, murdered in Washington state in 1987. When DNA is found at a crime scene, usually through blood or semen, it is sent off to the National DNA Bank in Canada and to CODIS, the FBI's DNA database in the States, to search for a match. But that only works if the DNA belongs to someone who's committed a serious crime and had their DNA uploaded into the system. Neither the Golden State Killer nor William Talbot, a Washington State truck driver, had criminal records or were ever suspects in these crimes. Genetic genealogy, a 21st century crime-fighting tool, is part art and part science, and it's proven to be a game-changer for law enforcement investigating cold cases. It involves searching through public DNA databanks, looking for relatives, a second cousin or an uncle, for instance, who shared DNA with a suspect. You may have done this yourself or known someone that spit into a tube and sent their DNA to a site like Ancestry.com or 23andMe to find out where you came from or maybe search for a long-lost relative. A genetic genealogist will then take that unidentified DNA profile and look for people who are relatives of the unknown suspect through their shared DNA. Unless the search turns up a parent and child match or a full sibling, there are multiple possible relationships. It could be an uncle and nephew, for instance, or they could be cousins. It gets really complicated quickly. And the genetic genealogist uses information such as birth certificates, marriages, name changes, and obituaries to build a family tree. In the case of the Golden State Killer, it took several months of searching to find a handful of potential candidates who would be the right age to be the killer and could geographically be connected to the crime scenes. Barbara Ray Venter's profile predicted the killer had blue eyes, and by conducting a search of California driver's license records, the FBI was able to narrow this down to one man. Police entailed the suspect until they were able to find his cast-off DNA on some items in his trash. 72-year-old Joseph D'Angelo, a former cop who was married with three children, was arrested and convicted as a Golden State Killer. A similar process was used to identify the babes in the woods, except rather than try and catch a killer, the idea was to give the boys their names back. In 2020, Olivia McCarter was a 19-year-old student at the University of South Alabama who had a passion for genetic genealogy. Her specialty was identifying the remains of missing children and bringing closure to their families. Olivia, who now runs the cold case unit for the Mobile County Sheriff's Office in Alabama, read about the Babes in the Woods on the Doe Network, the International Center for Unidentified and Missing Persons. As the head and unpaid intern for Boston-based Redgrave Research, she thought she could help to identify the two boys. Olivia contacted Dr. David Sweet at the University of British Columbia, who had extracted DNA from the boy's teeth in the late 1990s. And Dr. Sweet put her in touch with Detective Constable Ada Rodriguez, who was handling the case.
1: When I contacted Vancouver PD about doing the case, I had no idea that it had such a big following. I just read the story that was on don't Network and wanted to work it because it was kids. But it was like late 2020. I contacted Dr. David Sweet. So he said that the new detective was Aida Rodriguez. So we talked on the phone. Well, I, I was like, I think that we could identify them using genealogy. And she was very receptive to it, like right away. She said, I think this would be great for the case. And I, I liked what she was saying. She was very interested in just getting the kids identified. And she was like, absolutely. yeah." We're not expecting a conviction.
2: We just want to give these babies their names back. And so you were working for Redgrave at that time? Is that how you got them involved?
1: Yes, I was their head intern. So I got the case for them. And it it took a couple of months,
2: just back and forth
1: conversation with Vancouver PD, just to lay that groundwork. Even I didn't know how big it was. I, I mean, I've never been to Vancouver. I've never been out of the southern United States. So I just wanted to work on it because kids are my priority.
2: By May 2021, the Vancouver Police Department had funding approved and they partnered with the BC Coroner's Service and Redgrave to try and identify the babes in the woods. Because most of their remains had been cremated in the 1990s, only a few fragments were left. These tiny, very old, and fragile bone fragments was sent to Lakehead University's Paleo-DNA Lab in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which recently identified a crew member who died during the doomed Franklin expedition in 1845. The lab successfully extracted DNA from the bone fragment of Derek, the older boy, and sent his DNA off to a lab in Alabama for genome sequencing. His DNA kit was then uploaded to GEDmatch, the open-source bank used by law enforcement. And then things moved very quickly. In the end, Olivia didn't get to work on the genealogy, but she's proud of the interns who did, and for her initial involvement in getting the case.
1: Working on kids' cases is probably my main priority, so Derek and David, just having any sort of involvement with that case was just awesome. I really like where I'm at right now at the Mobile County Sheriff's Office. I I really enjoy working on my Alabama cases, especially I think that being able to solve murders and and identify people in in your home is some of the most important work ever. I want to knock out Alabama's cold cases altogether.
2: By the second week in February, I was able to confirm from two different sources that the Vancouver Police Department had the names of the babes in the woods. This was huge. But that's all I had. The police were not releasing any information at that point. Then on Saturday, February 12th, 2022, a young lady, I'm calling her by her nickname Ellie, contacted me and said that a Vancouver Police detective had been to see her mother who I'm going to call Cindy. The detective gave Cindy the devastating news that her uncles, Derek and David Dealton had been murdered, probably in 1947, and that they were the infamous Babes in the Woods. Now, neither Ali or her mother had heard the story of the Babes in the Woods, and when Ali went online to do some research, she came across my podcast. Ali sent me photos that she'd scanned from the family album, and it was incredible to put faces to these two little boys after all this time. There's a school photo from Henry Hudson Elementary in Kitsilano, taken around 1946 or 47, showing Derek, the oldest, a smiling little blonde boy with blue eyes. David, who is dark-haired, is shown in a few photos with his older sister, Diane, and others with his mother Eileen or her twin sister Doreen. There are houses in the background, probably in one of the addresses the family lived at in Kitsilano during that period. Over the weekend, I worked with Ali on putting together a story for my blog. Ali's mother Cindy was in her early 20s when she first heard that she had two missing uncles. It was in the 1980s and she was looking at photos in the family album of her mother with two boys, probably the ones that Ali had sent me. Cindy would ask her mother, Diane, what had happened to her brothers, but she would refuse to talk about it. She would just cry. Eventually, Cindy was told that the family was very poor and that Derek and David were taken away by Children's Protective Services because their mother, Eileen, couldn't provide for them. Diane remained with her mother, but she told Cindy stories of having to jump out of the windows of places where they were living, when the landlord came looking for his rent. Ali's great-grandmother, Eileen, the mother of the babes in the woods, was born in Edmonton in 1917. Her mother died when she was only eight, and she and a twin sister, Doreen, older sister, Joan, and two brothers, Joe and Ed, were dumped into a Catholic orphanage. Ten years later, the twins hitchhiked to Vancouver, and in September 1935, They were staying at a Westside hostel when they had their first brush with fame. According to articles in the Vancouver Sun and Province, they'd spent a day in jail after they were caught setting off five fire alarms in Kitsilano. It was just for fun, they told the judge. He told the two 18-year-olds that they were lucky. The maximum sentence for this offence was one year in jail. Eileen first appears in the city directories in 1936. She's living in Burnaby and working as a maid for the Malcolmson family. Her daughter Diane is born the following year, Derek follows 3 years later, and David is born in June 1941. That year, Eileen is listed in the directory as Eileen Dalton, widow. There are no records of a marriage in British Columbia during that period, and it's unknown whether Dalton was the father of one of the children or if it was a name that she made up. Eileen and the 3 kids And for a couple of years, when they're joined by Eileen's sister, Doreen, continue to move around to various addresses in Kitsilano. And for a while, Eileen is waitressing at Moray's Coffee Shop on Smith Street. But oddly, there are no listings for the family in 1947 or 48, the time period when the boys were murdered. In January 1949, Eileen and Doreen, now 31, appear on the front page of the province with another set of twins in some kind of matching game. All five siblings are now living in Vancouver. Older sister Joan married a Vancouver hotel operator in 1944 and she's living in a large Shaughnessy house with her husband, children and two brothers, Ed and Joe, who are back from the war. After my story came out, a couple of researchers dug into the background of Joan's husband, Joseph. It was Joseph's third marriage, his first one ended abruptly, when his young wife left for a dental appointment in 1935 and was never seen again. A month later, Joseph advertised in the province for a housekeeper, and the following year his marriage was dissolved. He married second wife Clara, also a divorcee, straight away, and she divorced him in 1944, a few months before he married Joan. Joan and Joseph lived for a time at Joseph's Hotel, now the Barclay Hotel on Robson Street, before moving to Cartier Street in Shaughnessy. Eileen's daughter and oldest child graduated Kitsilano High as Diane D'Alton in 1955. After my story came out on the blog, John Weiss, who was born in Vancouver in 1941, got in touch with me. He told me that he remembered Diane well even though he was the same age as Diane's brother Derek. He'd gone to General Gordon Elementary and he'd never met the boys. He did, though, have a huge crush on the older Diane. John left school and went to work at Vancouver International Airport. He told me that he was working an afternoon flight one day when he saw Diane coming down the stairs in a United Airlines uniform. Not long after that, he heard that she'd married a United Airlines DC 8 captain moved to Florida and had a child. The next time he saw her was in the early 1970s when he was working for Bultby Sweet Real Estate Agency. Diane was divorced, had her real estate license, and had joined the firm. The last time he saw Diane, he said, she was running a bed and breakfast somewhere east of Mission. Diane was only 10 when her brothers disappeared, and even though they went to Henry Hudson Elementary, Their absence from school does not appear to have raised any red flags. When Cindy asked her mother about her uncles, Diane refused to talk about it. And shortly before she died in 2020, Cindy wanted to find out more about her heritage. She took a swab from Diane and sent it off to MyHeritage. She discovered that Eileen's father was Métis. Cindy's daughter Ali then decided to search for her great-uncles, hoping to find them still alive, or if not, Their children or grandchildren. She sent her DNA to 23 and me. When detectives paid a visit to Cindy, they told her that they couldn't find any records to indicate that the boys were taken into child protection custody, as she'd been told. But the point I'm trying to get at is there were other family members who would have known the boys or at least known about them and should have been aware of Eileen's precarious financial existence. Why didn't they help? And what about the fathers? There are at least two, possibly three fathers, who have still not been identified. Yet the police have always believed and still believe that the babes in the woods, who we now know are David and Derek, were murdered by their mother. This is Inspector Dale Weedman at the Vancouver Police Department's press conference in February 2022.
1: And while I can stand here today and tell you that we have identified the victims in this case, I must also acknowledge that no arrests have been made. After some decades as a cold case we always presume that the person who killed Derek
2: and David had likely passed away but because no charges can be laid I can't tell you the person's name but I can tell you with confidence that the person who likely killed these boys was a close father that way. Later in the media conference CTV's reporter Sinjin Alexander asked Weedman to clarify if the mother is still the primary suspect in the murders. This is what he said. To make that assumption. And so she
1: would probably be a person of interest if this case had, or occurred today. Or actually, we would be looking at the mother,
2: yes. But Cindy doesn't believe that for a second. She says her grandmother was a lovely, gentle woman who babysat the kids and loved animals. She also seems sad but refused to talk about it. Eileen died in 1996 at the age of 78. Two days after my blog came out, A woman named Heather sent me an email. She told me that she had a secret. A few years before her mother-in-law died in 1988, she told Heather and her husband a story. Anne lived in the West End all her adult life and often walked in Stanley Park. In the late summer or early fall of 1947, Anne was pregnant with her son when she encountered a woman wearing a fur coat accompanied by two children in a Stanley Park washroom. She thought it was strange that the woman was wearing a fur coat because it was a warm day. The children, she said, wore aviator hats. Later that day, she saw the same woman in Stanley Park, but this time she was no longer wearing her coat and she didn't have the children. When the skeletons were found just over five years later, Anne was sure that this woman was the mother of the babes in the woods. But the police got it wrong, she told Heather. It wasn't a boy and girl, it was two boys. Heather says she encouraged her mother-in-law to go to the police, but Anne didn't trust police, and she refused. Ten years after she died, the DNA was tested, and Anne was right. It was two boys. The problem with the other tips that police followed in the early years of the investigation is that there was no holdback evidence in those days. Every detail of the murder was known, as well as names and even addresses. Everything went into the newspapers. The difference with this account is that Anne remembered seeing the woman with two boys. She was sure of that, and that's one detail that no one knew until 1998. It's not much help as tips go. Anne didn't give a description of the woman, and we're still not sure exactly when she was in Stanley Park. But if it's true, it does help to confirm that the year Derek and David were murdered was 1947. While it would be great to find out who murdered the children, I'm not sure, in the end, that it really matters. We know that Derek and David were brutally killed in the late 1940s. Now, thanks to science, they have their names back. While presently only Derek's DNA has been identified, as forensic techniques advance, it's likely that we'll also learn about David's paternity and be able to finally confirm if they were full or half-brothers.
1: Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada.
2: My condolences and thanks to the family. They've asked for privacy and I've changed their names to respect that. For more information, show notes and photos for this episode and information on my books, please see my website evelazarus.com. I just wanted to finish off with a message from the Vancouver Police Museum one of my favorite places in the city.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the Babes in the Wood case and other historic murder cases in Vancouver, visit the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives, read case files and see real evidence from the Babes case, the infamous milkshake murder, and others that were investigated in the building's former forensic analyst lab and city morgue. Located at 240 East Cordova Street, The Vancouver Police Museum and Archives is an independent, non profit organization and relies on visitors like you for support. Buy tickets online at VancouverPoliceMuseum.ca.